one of the main advantages that I come in with many times is saying like, we'll just zoom out and just completely flip this 180 if you can and figure out, is this the best way to even do it? Because you don't have to inherit the things that you've been told. You can do it completely a different way as well too. And that's something that helps me stay fresh and sharp. Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. My name is Tom, your host, and we have got a guest that I've been waiting to bring on for months, if not years. It's Jonathan Dane, the founder and CEO of Client Boost, who are an awesome agency that share all their wisdom that just have an incredible brand. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're splitting the discussion into two. First, we're talking about Jonathan's expertise in PPC, in B2B marketing strategy, and the difference between demand creation and demand capture. And then we move on to culture, leadership, operations, hiring, because Jonathan is an expert at that because he's done a client boost and that can apply to any B2B marketing team. So we'll jump into that in a second. For now, we have to give a massive shout out to Fame. So Fame, make this show. It's also the business that I created. Go to fame.so to see what we do. We essentially start and grow profitable podcasts for B2B brands. Go and check out the logos on the homepage or the case studies. So thank you, Fame. There'll be a link below as well. So let's jump into that discussion right now. Jonathan, welcome to the show. I am happy to be here, man. Thank you for having me. I've wanted you to get you onto this pod for a long time <laughs> because there's a couple of things that I think you do really well. Okay. Thing one is that you must or like have definitely got really good at a specific type of marketing, at number one. And then from there, you've obviously got good at a lot of other stuff that has enabled you to build an awesome company. Yeah. And so that's how I want to structure this episode is first dig into your understanding of like B2B marketing, et cetera. And then we can talk about the growth of Client Boost. Now to zoom out, everybody, if you don't know who Jonathan Dane is, go to clientboost.com or search for Jonathan Dane on LinkedIn and go do that. They'll be linked below anyway. So let's like, would you agree with my theory that you first like got really, really good at PPC for businesses? Yeah, yeah. I think I had a good take on, I call it first principles thinking of like, how are people doing this and what are the secrets to making it perform better? And that was the early days where we then came out with some solutions and some coined terms, you can say, that kind of put us on the map and helped let, lead to the growth that we achieved for sure. Did you birth the, the skag? I didn't birth it. I think I ran with it. I think I stole it from somebody else and I coined it and I ran with it that way. But then we planted that flag and held on to it for a long time. Yeah. The secret for getting good, because I know the full story, like you were on Craigslist finding clients maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, I've been mean, doing things beyond marketing as well too. Yeah, selling jerseys and other things, yeah. But the secret for somebody listening in the B2B marketing world, and they're like, I just want to get really good at any strategy. Is it just volume, like do it for every day for three years? No, I think the deliberateness behind it is more important. And what I mean by that is, I think, too many people in today's world are strategists and they're not really the ones that want to roll up their sleeves and be able to like take something from A to B. And so they don't know how the machines work. They don't know how the sausage is being made, as some people say. And that's pretty clear when we have interviews with people as well, too, that we're looking for people who can do both. They can be the strategic partner and talk about where we're going. They can almost be like a marketing Sherpa taking a client up a mountain, but they can also show how things lead to revenue outcomes or pipeline outcomes, for example, as well, too. Very, very specifically, very deep in an ad platform, for example, too. So that's my biggest gripe with today's B2B marketers, I would say. 
And we'll talk more about how you can attract these type of like awesome people later on. My question to you right now is obviously Client Boost has X amount of employees. How close are you to the sausage being made, e.g. like the ad accounts for PPC like these days? I'm still pretty involved, to be honest. I like to keep my skills sharp and fresh because a lot of the things that I have, again, are not, they're not taught to me. Same thing from a corporate perspective in terms of culture and things like that too. And so I feel like my viewpoint is very much so wipe the slate clean. We don't have to do it this way. We can re-engineer it completely from scratch. And I think a lot of people, they can't do that mentally because they're not a founder like me. They don't have a boss. Like, well, I don't have a boss, I should say, but they do, right? And so a lot of fear is still there regardless of how good your culture is. And so one of the main advantages that I come in with many times is saying like, we'll just zoom out and just completely flip this 180 if you can and figure out, is this the best way to even do it? Because you don't have to inherit the things that you've been told. You can do it completely a different way as well too. And that's something that helps me stay fresh and sharp, like I mentioned as well too. So pretty involved still. So you would like jump in and do audio on like client ad accounts, like tweak stuff and be like, we can do this better here, like even today. Totally, yeah. I still talk a lot of shit to my team and we have a very competitive nature internally that the day that somebody can outperform me holistically, we definitely have people who are way smarter than me depth-wise on different things that are very subject matter experts. And that's how we should hire as well too. But in terms of taking a client and all the things that are needed, think about the political aspect of buy-in internally, right? Of like, well, why should we do this thing? And, and what are the benefits and the pros and cons? So I find that that also helps me stay sharp for our own marketing because that's what I spend most of my time on internally today. Yeah, you like almost the death of a CEO would be like to get so far or the founder, et cetera, because I understand you're not the CEO right now, but it's to get so far away from the actual thing that you have, you can't innovate, you don't really understand what's going on. So it seems like you purposefully stay close to the... Yeah, I find that, like we talked about, I'm not knowing how the machine works because I think it's part people and talent and it's, and it's part systems as well too. The systems aspect, I'm very much geeking out about as well too. So I have no plans on, on leaving that or, or getting too far from that. Got it. Now, despite the extreme knowledge of PPC, I understand this, especially in the early days, the big growth leader for client boost was actually SEO. Yep. Ironically enough, yeah. Tell me more. Why didn't we do PPC? How do we get SEO to work so well? And I recommend anybody go check out Client Boost blog, like incredible content consistently. Yeah, no, thank you. I think it was just being poor, to be honest. It was, I had nothing but time, right? And so what I did very well, and this is early days on the Craigslist side, is I figured out what I can do to leverage social proof without really knowing it was called social proof at that time. And so I could write and I was really curious about writing and I got some companies like WordStream or Unbalance to start paying me, right? And I used those articles to start convincing other orgs to pay me or the, I would call it piggybacking on the domain rating of these domains. And so I was creating these backlinks to our content and then eventually shifted more of our focus to our own content too. And because I had nothing but time, didn't have a lot of money, my focus was, well, how do I create epic content? And back then it was all listicles. It was, if I was writing about pizza recipes and I'm competing against 11 different recipes or 12 different recipes, I better come out with 21 recipes or nobody's going to care, right? That was as simple as it was back then without, of course, having the fluff. And that was just, that was what we did just day in and day out all the time. And it worked really well and it created that snowball for us that we're benefiting of still today. If you were to be in the same stage back then, but like now, do you think you'd still choose SEO? I would choose SEO. I would go very, very deep on the experience piece in terms of building tools and things that are just things that people would want to come back to all the time. 
first-party data, resource hubs, things like that as well too, because now we have that advantage ourselves of having a lot of clients. And then I would have that those pillar pieces of content being in a strong distribution focus in terms of like LinkedIn, Twitter, employee thought like leader content as well too, that they can use from like a library of what we already have. So it makes it easier for them to evangelize. So I would still do SEO, but it wouldn't be before then, it was just like the only thing that we focused on really doing. Now it would be a bit more of a spiderweb approach, to be honest. So around, I think it may be like three to five years ago, you guys started offering things that weren't PPC and were other things in the marketing world, right? Right now, out of all of those service lines, which is the strategy that you think that you're most excited about in terms of getting results for B2B marketers today? I still think the one that we originally chose, the paid ad side, because there's so much to do on that front as well too. And the creative portion has been very, very interesting for us and, and exciting for the clients as well. In CRO, it's insane to me how many B2B marketers that even have the title of demand gen, but they come to us and what they really need is like better performing demand capture because they try to skip that step and they are inflated CACs and they don't have great conversion rates either. So there's still so much meat on the bone for that. It's insane to us. So I would still do that. I think in the near future, the, the fractional CMO that we're becoming for clients and having what we call this thing that we're coming out with called the Marketing Maturity Mountain. It basically is a guide of how you're able to grow sustainably, which means you don't have these plateaus of performance. So if you're doing demand capture, you're really focused on the in-market activities and the audiences that are there, but you're going to exhaust that and it's going to be much more expensive as time goes along. And so what ends up happening, I think that a lot of B2B marketers, they over-index in all the tools, like the intent, the third-party audiences, the in-market stuff and all the signals, which is great. But if you're doing only that and you're not also doing how to expand your buying pool over time and growing your TAM, you're kind of setting yourself up for like very short-term success and very intense growing pains later on when you hit that plateau. And it just means that you have an opportunity to do things that your competitors aren't doing because they're not brave enough to do these things. But it's also, you may not have like the strategy of how to like tie the dots together in terms of well, how does a brand play actually help our demand generation and our demand capture as well too? And how do we prove that with certain maybe new metrics that tell that story? So that's not a service I can't like put in the box easily, but it's something that a lot of our clients are asking for. We're now building solutions for. And it's kind of like this, let's help you take you up the mountain. Let's make sure that every step of the mountain attaches to your goals as a company as well too. And then also helps you become quantifiably different from your competitors as well too. A lot of, especially B2B SaaS companies, do not do well in terms of answering, well, how are you objectively different from your competitors? And what's your go-to-market strategy that's going to like strike a chord with your audience? And surprisingly, even the ones that have decent rounds raised, they do not have strong answers for that. When's the uh, marketing maturity manager being released? Next month, we actually have an event with Google in LA where we're coming out with it prior to that. We're coming out with a podcast around the whole theme of that as well, too. So hopefully by August of this year, yeah. Love it. Going back to the content play, I remember, I don't think you're doing this now, but you were releasing, whenever you guys hear Revenue Master and you like release this like incredible detailed post about how you did it or what you're focused on, etc. What would you say were like the real upsides there? And were there any downsides for releasing that information? No, it's so crazy. The more I've been building in public and the more I've been having transparency as one of our values, the more important I believe it becomes because the benefits of having trust and I wouldn't say loyalty, that's a stupid word because I think that goes both ways, but just the trust being built. Here's the thing. 
I was even flirting with the idea of like releasing our entire client list of names. And to put it to the test of, if you can grab our clients from us, then it's a sign that we're pretty weak at having a good relationship with our clients. So that's level of transparency. But I was like, that's too much work. And I don't really care to do that right now. But I thought about it. So the people that mostly are afraid of the transparency, like from an even profitability perspective or revenue perspective, they think that their employees are going to take advantage of them. And it's never happened. In fact, you can have an easier time telling your team, these are the rules of the game within Client Boost. These are the EBITDA milestones that we need to hit. And so we can't do anything other than that. Like we can't hire, we can't do these other things until like this is being met versus the obscure or ambiguous. We're just not there yet, right? And so it feels like you're rowing in the same direction more often when you're able to be more transparent. Nice. And I guess the added benefit is that I assume those posts perform really well. And the kind of founder or entrepreneur, like part of that persona could be good buyers for you guys, right? Totally. It doesn't hurt at all. I mean, we have, it's funny enough, and this wasn't the intention either, but it's a massive talent attraction factor as well too. And so people see that as well. And that's something where like, it just becomes very easy to hire great people and even companies that are, or people that are part of agencies that we admire and look up to. And like, they don't do some of the things that we feel like are like table stakes for us. Makes it very easy to show them that we do that and they get very excited for it. And then they want to join us. So I'm like, that's easy. Now, one more thing on the B2B marketing side before we move on to like internal management and ops and leadership, et cetera, is you mentioned the difference between demand creation and demand capture. And I'm super excited about this because my business, we basically got to roughly like 3 million a year AR, almost purely from demand capture. And maybe that's just a bit smaller. We're in a big market, so we haven't had to do this stuff yet. But at what point do you think a business will start to be like, okay, we need to start creating demand? So the funny thing is, is that so many people can skip steps in what we think are like the smart chronological journeys to take. And they can still be successful. A lot of companies can be really, really shitty at a lot of things and still be able to grow. So it depends on your plateaus and how you're feeling like it's harder to do. So if your churn rate versus your acquisition rate are very much canceling each other out. Like it's time to start doing other things that are hard to do because it's the difference between fast marketing and slow marketing, right? The slowest marketing is a brand aspect. The little bit faster than that is the demand generation. And the very quick things and the fast things are the demand capture side. So everybody is having this short-termism as if it was a disease within marketing. And then rightfully so, like that's just human nature, right? They want quick fixes, especially us Americans. And that's what they're going to go for. But you just, you hamstring yourself a bit too. So the answer lies in within your total addressable market. You then have little buckets of what we call serviceable addressable markets. Like what are the things you can actually do? And then you also look at what we call supply, which is part of this marketing maturity mountain. What of the leads you're getting today that you don't want to service, right? Because they're not big enough for you, potentially. Are there other things you can offer them that you can still generate revenue from so that you can basically help improve your CAC to LTV ratios? that then affords you to be spending more in the current stage you are on the technical mountain, or it allows you to put some budget aside for the demand generation or even the brand side as well too. It's absolutely bananas how little is needed many times to separate yourself from the consideration set of your competitors, because so many of them are focusing on just like that one serviceable addressable market. They're all in on the demand capture and like that's all they're doing. And then you have a little bit of fun doing something that obviously is educational to your market of what they care about, right? And you may be good at entertaining them without hopefully being cringe about it. And then that can immediately separate you and put you higher on the consideration set for your competitors compared to your competitors. So it depends on really 
long-winded answer of like, whenever you feel like you're hitting that plateau and you're just like not really growing, you're treading water. So those are the things that we look at basically. Got it. This is, and I love that you're sharing that because about six months ago, so we sell like roughly three months like podcast service basically. And we're getting all these leads through demand capture and a chunk were like too low, couldn't afford that. And so we offered this like one-off $1,500, $2,000, like almost like coaching and some templates and some software. And then, so what we essentially did is just unlock an extra amount of revenue from that same ad spend. And then we're able to you know, like increase that ratio. And what you're saying is that maybe we could have like taken a little bit of extra ad spend that we're getting from the increased profitability and done like a crazy demand creation experiment. You could, you could. It's kind of like a little stepladder approach of like saying, I'm getting a little bit more money. I can use that for other things too, without just feeding the same engine that's going to like perpetually keep me in the same spot. And you can do other things too, like the supply aspect of our marketing maturity mountain isn't just new offers, it's also geographic expansion as well too, right? You may find that you can go in other parts of the world where the cost per acquisition is lower and the LTV is still the same. You don't know that until you get to a certain scale and you feel comfortable testing those things out. And that's when you start looking at all the data and the tools you now have available, like doing some kind of forecasting that can at least give you some idea of what's the best next move to make. Because as a marketer, you have a hundred roads that you can walk down, but your job is to figure out which three are the ones that are going to be the highest impactful in terms of the business outcome that you're trying to generate, right? That's the hard part a lot of people do. They do a lot of activity. And like I said, you can do a lot of things wrong and still not know because just like an experiment from a drug perspective, you don't have like a placebo control group and then the people that are seeing or getting the actual drug. It's all messy because you're doing a lot of things at once as well too. So it's hard to figure out what works and what doesn't. This is really like high level marketing strategy stuff. And it's obvious that you're able to develop this over like 10 years of being a founder, like being dedicated to learning the craft. Now we're going to shift to the second half of the episode where we talk about how you have built this organization of people that can do this. And so just before we do that, any B2B marketers listening, just because you don't own your own business doesn't mean this isn't relevant to think of your B2B marketing team as like the business that we're going to talk about here. And so my first question is, what's your like number one tip for, obviously you have this wisdom and this knowledge and these skills. Maybe it's better in the early days where you were probably the person who was training people, but how do we best infuse that into the team so they can go and do the thing, whether that's employees in a business or members of a B2B marketing team? Yeah, so... Recently, this was in December of last year, we actually got our first investors on board. And we thought we were hot shit from day one. Been very confident and swing, I would say, punching above my weight as well too for a long time, just from a mental perspective. And they introduced us to something called scorecards. And there's this book called Who. And it was absolutely transformational for me because a lot of people maybe we listen or watching and say, well, scorecards are common. I'm like, guys, keep in mind, I have no corporate experience whatsoever. So everything that I can absorb, I try to be like that sponge and I try to see how it works. And what we realized was that we were good at helping people understand what their metrics were and what they're in charge of, but we never put a certain milestone around those metrics and to be hit by a certain date. And that's what these scorecards did for us. And so we just came off of Q2 has been our best performing quarter ever from all the leading indicators that we know from a client satisfaction perspective in terms of NPS, goals being achieved for our clients and things like that as well too, because we just put it on paper and we got agreement. And so a lot of times, that's what I would say today, I would do as number one, make sure that even in the hiring process, the interview process, you have that scorecard ready get that book who they have examples of what those scorecards look like and just make sure the person knows what they're getting into because it basically maps out their first 30, 60, 90 days as well too and also longer term initiatives as well. But that has been something that 
gets me back in like the starting days of KB excitement for myself that I'm very hyped about. So just to clarify what a scorecard might look like, is it essentially just the things that an employee would need to hit within those timeframes in order to be like performing? Yeah, just to know that like they're doing well, right? It doesn't mean that like all, they, they're called outcomes. So one scorecard for one job title may have five to seven outcomes and they're ranked in highest priority to lowest priority. And so it's very common that like you don't hit all of your outcomes, but it's the classic saying of like you shoot for the moon, but you're gonna land amongst the stars. Like you're still better off than not having it. Versus the feeling of, hey, these are the metrics you're in charge of. But if you're not saying by when and what level those metrics need to be at, then you're kind of like selling yourself short. And people are thinking they're doing great work or they're just kind of maintaining. But our retention has kind of been flat, not really improving or not really getting worse for years until we saw that scorecard inside. And then now it's popping in an even higher direction. So that's been amazing. In one of the income reports, maybe 2018, uh, you also explained, well, you shared the chart of retention and then you mentioned that you were taking actions in order to boost that back up. So maybe this was pre-scorecard. Can you remember like what those actions were and like previous things you've done to help retention basically? So I think one thing we tried for a very long time and I wasn't enough, this is the part where I wasn't enough and close enough to how the sausage is being made was we have quarterly business reviews, QBRs. And at the end of those QBRs, we have seven questions that we ask the client. And the whole point was for the account manager to really lift the rug and dig deep and get everything out on the table in terms of what they need to do for the client to be really, really happy. And nobody really did a good job checking to make sure that those questions were asked correctly and that there was actually like good answers coming from those questions that then can be, and how do we track the client satisfaction from that point on versus the lagging indicator, which is just basically net revenue retention. And so that's what we saw we were doing well. And so these scorecards that we literally have been live for one quarter so far, we then decided, let's focus on monthly NPS surveys, which is, sounds pretty aggressive. Every month, every single one of our 250 clients are getting a survey. And it's, of course, it's like a one-question survey. But we have nearly 100% response rate. And what we then track is the trend in the last three months of how that NPS response rate is going in addition to the last three quarters of the client's goals. Are we hitting them? Or are we not hitting them? And then we can start seeing and we can predict churn before it actually happens. And then we can also be more specific about what the account manager should do. So we went from trusting what the account manager said to just asking the client directly now instead. And that was like, why the fuck did we not do that a lot sooner? <laughs> and that's where we are. That's I'm okay with that. So hopefully we can take that and grow much faster now. Another point from one of the income reports that has inspired me, but it's like super specific, was your point about the <laughs> formatting of the phone number <laughs> and the email signatures. Can you explain that and why it's important? So I think it ties into what you allow as a founder, and that dictates the culture as well too, right? Is I'm very much an eagle eye kind of person where like, and what you're mentioning is the formatting of the phone number in the email signature or the spacing between the lines and the email signature, or even the font color, we have a funny little like gray area below our email signature. Like if you get this email in error, blah, blah, blah. And like you start reading, you think it's just a standard one, but then it gets like super weird and funny later on as well too, if you actually pay attention. Those little things I think are absolutely critical because as you grow in size, the amount of systems that you have are going to increase. The complexity of your machine is going to get bigger and more complex. And so you can let things slip over time because then you have this whole game of Jenga 
or this like rotten foundation of a house where it becomes a house of cards over time. And not a lot is needed to have it all come crashing down. So I also think it comes from my childhood anxiety, which is a whole other story as well, too, that like my mom was basically giving me the insight to be the leader I am today without her really knowing that I was going to decide to do that as, and become a CEO. So I think it's part trauma and I think it's part it's really good practice in terms of like making sure that we all agree that these things are important, then let's not let them slip. On the CEO note, I believe you stepped back from that role in the last couple of years. I did and actually came back in. It didn't end up working out. Wow. Interesting. My next question was going to be around hiring because obviously you've hired leaders and presumably hired a CEO. Any insights on like hiring people that, I don't know, may be better than you at specific things? Yeah, I think you have to, I mean, I sound like the biggest scorecard fanatic and I am, but it's like you need to have the scorecard finalized, step one. And then when you're doing these interviews, what you're really finding is that your total addressable market from a talent perspective is going to shrink dramatically because you're really looking for the 10% of people who are doing the outcomes in that scorecard well, and they can speak to the details of how they achieve those outcomes in that scorecard well. And you can pretty quickly see whether they know how to do it or they don't know how to do it, depending on how detailed they are in their description. And so really quickly, somebody will reach out to me on LinkedIn. They're like, hey, I'd love to come work for Client Boost. And I always say, first off, you're working with Client Boost. Second, what role do you are you interested in? And they're saying like account manager. And I ask them, hey, just to help you not waste your time, can you explain like how you did these three things? And they're like contract extensions, setting business level goals, for example, with clients, like not like ad platform goals, like revenue, pipeline, whatever it may be. And third, how good were you at upsells and give me detail around that? And so many people, they just disappear because they don't have answers, right? And so that's a good thing to like quickly like scan whether or not they are about it. But you're looking for people that are very specifically can do the skills that you obviously your scorecard is mentioning. And then by the timeline of when your scorecard is mentioning it as well too. So that sounds very like, well, isn't that a job description? No, because a job description is way too fluffy. It's just like giving an idea of like, you need to work in a fast paced environment and you need to have like a good attitude. I'm like, everybody's going to nod their head and say yes. And that's why you keep getting a million applicants that aren't like quality for you, right? So you need to tighten the lens of what you're looking through. Makes total sense. So back in the CEO role, how long has that been for? Like about a year now, actually, yeah. Got it. And did you have like, when you came in, you were like 30, 60, 90 days, these are things I want to change, tweak or improve. Yeah, so before we got the investors on board, and these guys were people who were just like, I would call them Hall of Fame agency people who kind of like have sold their stuff and they're now doing whatever the hell they want, right? They kind of came in with this crystal ball and, and then showed us like early on before they became investors, like, hey, here's how you rank amongst your peer set of other agencies as well too. And like that was eye-opening because I only could see when agencies were founded and I can see their headcount of employees like from the outside. That was my only like gauge. And what we found out was like there was so many improvements that we could make, even though we thought our marketing was great. Well, our Cactel TV might not have been the best. Like it can be a lot better, right? So there's improvements in the retention aspect. There's improvements in not overpaying for acquiring clients and things like that as well too. And that insight just was like me smelling like blood in the water as a shark because now I had reality in front of me. And my goal is to one day sell Client Boost, right? And have a great financial outcome for myself and my team and, and my family. And so I knew now what I was competing against when it came to the private equity world, for example. And so 
that had been like a sense of urgency was unlocked in me. And that's where I started making these moves as well, too. Wasn't it professional basketball before coming into the PPC game? Yeah. So it feels like you have, or one thing that may be important for any founder, I guess, is this like competitive edge, right? You saw what the competition were doing and you're like, we could definitely beat that. Yep. I think basketball and my success in basketball has helped me kind of be like, I'm intensely confident and I am extremely optimistic as well too. To the point where like our investors are <laughs> bring one foot down into reality, JD. I'm like, no, are you saying to me that we can't do that? They're like, no. And I'm like, shut the fuck up and help me get there. That's what you're here for, right? I think that's important too, that like I keep a good balance on when COVID hit, for example, all shit was like crazy, right? For all businesses. When the looming recession, especially in the B2B SaaS market was drying up, and we were losing clients and everybody was like lowering their budgets. And now it was a game of efficiency and not so much money is free. Let's go wild. Having those like heartfelt conversations or like it can't hit the fan, but here's what we're doing in case to prevent that. But if it does, here's what we're also going to do. That is a good balance to have as a founder where like you have to be confident, you have to be optimistic or you're, this is not going to work for you. It's going to be really hard. And you have to also not be so blindly optimistic to say everything is great. Because your team is, they're not stupid, right? They're going to like sniff that out too. So I think in transparency, it's a tricky seesaw balance, but if you get it right, it's, it's really powerful. There we go, JD. So expert PPC, marketing strategist turned founder, CEO, and now like leadership management ops guru, I want to say. <laughs> your words, not mine, but thank you for the kind words. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to link to the Who book. I'm going to link obviously to Client Boost. Your LinkedIn. Is there anything else we should link to below? No, I think that's great. And if anybody has any questions, I think like you mentioned as well too, like even if you're internally in a B2B SaaS organization, for example, and like you're curious about how these principles work from a leadership perspective or just management perspective, they're so dead simple. And this is the reason why we won Glassdoor back in 2022. We were the number one company. I don't think a marketing agency has ever done that before because we're classically known as being very stressful <laughs> of a job environment. So... You get your team to feel strong, confident, excited, taken care of. The performance and the output and the productivity you're going to get too to hit your goals yourself. Don't even get me started on that. So you can't skimp. You got to be holistic about everything you do. There we go, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thank you, Tom. All right, team. What do we think about that? I hope the second section wasn't too like founder entrepreneur focused, but I'm pretty sure that all the wisdom that Jonathan was sharing can also apply to any small or large B2B marketing team that you may be part of or running. So first off, let's give a shout out to the person on Apple Podcasts who's named Emma underscore falling underscore upwards for this review. I've worked with several B2B clients and this show consistently comes up with good listenership and quality B2B guests each episode. Thank you so much for that, Emma. If you have any feedback about the show, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'll get it. I'll see it. If you pay me the link or the screenshot to that review, I'll give you and your business a shout out in the outro of an episode going forward. Of course, thank you so much to fame.so for producing this show. If you have a B2B business and want someone to do all the work to grow and start a profitable podcast for you, then go to fame.so. Thank you to Jonathan for being so generous with his wisdom. And thank you to you for listening.